21st Century Entrepreneurship with Martin Piskarik. First of all, how did you come up with the idea for your own technical content marketing firm? It came a bit organically as far as these things go. So I have always liked writing for fun and I was a software engineer. So I would write about being a software engineer. And then as I moved into management, I'd write about what it's like to manage teams of software engineers and other technical things. Anyway, I did it enough on my personal blog and other sites that like eventually companies started reaching out to me saying, we would pay you a few hundred dollars if you'd write some blog posts for us. So I did it a few times uh, on and off when I had time, but I was still working full time. And then what happened was during COVID of the beginning of COVID, the company I was working for started to hit a rough patch and they were like going to shut down. It was a small startup. We just were not going to last long enough with the funding we had. And so um, as I saw the writing on the wall, I started to say like, okay, what do I want to do next? I'll just start doing some of this more, some more writing. Like the companies were reaching out to me already. Figure I'll just start with them. I'll start talking to other people that might be similar and ask if they want me to write some things. And I'll just become a writer for a while and then figure out what my next job is, you know? And uh, within probably three months as I like transitioned out of the old job and did this full time, it became really clear that there was just a ton of unmet demand in this space because what I'm doing is just only writing content aimed at software engineers written by another software engineer. So it's super technical. It's got code samples. It's got real world experience, very unique offering in a way. And so companies just couldn't get enough of that. I kept raising my rates. I kept, you know, like I started to then like hire other people to write things. And then I'd subcontract out work. And then I started to get an editor in place. And like, I was, it was almost like, I don't want to say it was accidental because I did think about it. Like, yeah, this could be a company, but honestly, it was not like day one. I thought this is going to be a 17 person company in two years, like it is today. So it's really just grown very quickly. And because largely market demand, right place, right time. So because of the COVID, it was something between uh, leap of faith and and logic thing. Necessity. Logical yeah. I mean, necessity. it was, yeah, it was like a little bit of, so my wife has a great job. Um, and so, but she works at a hospital where she has to go in every day. I wanted something very flexible. And I thought freelance writing is a good, flexible thing. I can do it at night, watch the kid during the day when daycare is closed or whatever. Like there was a lot of advantages there too. So it was partly necessity and like wanting to have something to do to keep my feet moving. But also I figured, you know, by writing a bunch of stuff, I'm putting my name out there on the internet and someone will see that and they'll eventually offer me a job or they'll, you know, like want to pay me to do more writing. Like, I don't know. It's just a good thing to have more of your name out there on the internet. And is your wife okay with your, I don't know, my name is on internet, so we will see. Oh gosh, she she's not the same style as me. She's a much more uh, private and normal person. And uh, yeah, I guess I'm the, the attention grabber. But but it's it's like, um, she definitely was very supportive. I mean, you have to, I think starting a company is a big challenge and a big leap of faith that you can figure things out. Even though we were making, I was making some money, it was much less than I made as a software engineer for many, the first two years really. And she had to be like, you know, A, she was going to, she provide healthcare through her job. And so in the US here, you know, we don't get just free healthcare. So it's a really big deal if you've got a family. Um, but she was also bringing in a lot of income in the first 
year, especially I was bringing much, much less. And so we had to, you know, work through that. And that it was very much a mutual decision. I told her the whole time, you know, if you decide like, look, you need to go get a job and, you know, grow up, then I'll go get a job and grow up and that's fine. But, you know, again, because it, it took off and started to do well pretty quickly, she was very okay with me taking a little bit of risk there. What does it mean, grow up? <laughs> I, I suppose not in, in a matter of emotional maturity, but because because entrepreneurship is pretty emotional, mature business. It is. It is, but it's also, it's a bit selfish. I mean, I'm going to get a little philosophical here, but like going out and saying, oh, I'm going to ignore a $150,000 a year job, a great software engineering leadership job I could go get tomorrow and going and making almost no money to do your own thing because you're think, you think you're so smart, you're going to figure out how to make even more in the future. That's a very like egotistical thing to do and selfish thing to do, especially when you have a family. I'm sorry, I'm talking personally, when I have a family to help support in a, you know, a lifestyle that we want to maintain. So anyway, all of it, like, you know, I had to put my contributions to long-term savings on hold. I had to put my contributions to the rent on hold. A lot of big things that, you know, could have, if we hadn't, if it hadn't gone well, would have, Put us back a few years for retirement. Now that said, again, like I could have gone and get gotten that job again later. So I was not thinking this is you know the big switch. If if I flip it, it's you know never recoverable. But still, it's a, it's a selfish act. In your industry, what's the window of opportunity for that kind of uh, uh, let's say new startup? So uh, I suppose if you are waiting for too long, for two years, three years, uh, your market will not recognize you anymore for full-time job or what, what's the window of opportunity? Or you have chance after three years and five years? I don't know. That's a good question. I would be curious to know if, if anyone has like encountered the, the window closing on them. I think it's more likely that what would ha have happened is I've got let's like right now, if I went, had to go get a job, I'm pretty out of practice with writing code. I've been managing full time for the last couple of years, basically, you know, since we started to hire people. And so I, I now would probably have to go get a job as more of a, a, a manager and, and pretty hands off with technical things. So it would probably just shift my opportunities rather than close the window on opportunities. You know, it's like, I, I, I think maybe that's something I look at opportunities anyway, as more of like, they're always shifting. And what's cool is once you start to throw in this weird mix of, of experience, like I've had now, like I've been a full-time writer, I've been a software engineer, I've led a team of software engineers, I've grown a little company. Like now I have all these weird windows that could open up that aren't typical jobs. And so maybe a company hires me to do consulting for their business that's similar to what I did, or um, maybe a company hires me in like one of these weird hybrid developer slash marketing roles that exist now. So there's all sorts of, I think this is one thing that people get too worried about is like picking a career path and saying, I have to follow exactly what the path is. Like you can deviate quite a bit and go do like two career paths in a way if you, if you're creative and you're willing to just say like, I'm just not going to follow the, all the rules. Maybe I'll follow most of them, but not quite all of them. Are there any other unique challenges uh, of running a business like like yours? I think the biggest things are people and emotions, managing my own emotional health and psychology. So as as I moved from doing all the work myself to depending on team a team to help me do the work and hiring that team and managing that team, 
everything got scary for a while. Like I was all of a sudden I was not writing this piece of content that we were going to turn around to a client and charge them a lot of money for. And I felt this almost like fear that oh, what if they screw it up? It's going to look like I'm a failure. Right. And that that's a very common fear. And so initially early on, especially when a single client would come back and say, this isn't what we wanted. I got really, it really affected me. Like I couldn't sleep at night sometimes when that happened. And it took a while. I mean, the first year was a lot of sleepless nights over, like worrying about losing clients, worrying about like screwing something up, worrying about making a bad hire, having to fire somebody or something like that. Like all these things happened in the first year that I had never really encountered before. Um, and managing, like keeping myself level and not like on these emotional swings all the time was extremely difficult. And so I, I don't know if this is helpful, but I did find a few coping mechanisms that helped me personally. Um, and so for me, it was finding some peer groups. So I'm in a couple of different peer groups that are like groups of other entrepreneurs who we all struggle with this kind of emotional ups and downs. We talk about the difficulty of it. I found uh, a a coach, an executive coach who also helps me a lot. It's a it, coaching is funny. It's a almost therapy, but also very forward facing. And so it ends up being a lot of like me talking about the, the fears and worries I have and him talking about like, okay, how do you overcome that? How do you start to like make a plan? Like, what do you do there? And it's really helpful uh, as well as um, having mentors who have been through this, who are five or 10 years ahead of me that can look back and say, yeah, I remember what that that's like, like, you'll be fine. You know, we all got through that. And it's not that uncommon to feel that way. So finding solutions like that. And besides that, like keeping up with your physical health like, or my physical health, that's a huge one for me, but, but anything else, like trying to get sleep in order, like all that is really helpful. Uh, again, it helps have a supportive spouse and awesome kid to spend time with, but it's tough. I mean, it, I don't, I don't want to go back to that year one again, if I can help it. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Very often I ask a question about daily routines. So what does your day-to-day -day work look like? Work, sport, meditation, sleeping? I, I wake up early, so 5, 5.30, and I do uh, some kind of workout. Either I mix in running or some kind of weights. I, I'm not a, a super athletic guy, but at least get 30 minutes of activity in every day. That's great. Uh, I do, uh, I kind of do like a protein shake for breakfast, really like don't eat a ton in the morning and then, um, make a salad for lunch. Uh, my back to my day to day is like, I take the kid to school and then I'm meetings all day until I pick him up. And then it's like, I cram in a lunch in there, maybe some emails in the middle. Uh, that's basically it at this point. It's in really interesting going from, uh, a software developer who gets at least half of my time was heads down coding work to now as, as a CEO of a company that's growing and we're constantly hiring, all I do are phone calls all day or Zoom calls all day. And um, I don't dislike it. I think it's just something to think about if you're, you know, like I always tell people who are thinking about starting a business, I'm like, okay, if you really want to grow a business, you're eventually going to get to a point where all you do is communication with other people, whether it's external things like going on a podcast or it's internal, like talking to your directors and trying to help them get through their issues, or it's big picture, like talking to the team about the vision, or it's going and hiring people or meeting with partners. Like that's all you do. And you get like a few hours here and there to go think and like try to make decisions. And then you just meet with people and dispel those decisions out. And that's the cycle. And so I, I don't dislike it, but it's interesting to learn about. It's just all a new thing to me. Do you have a, a solid business model or are you still in, in developing it? 
Yeah, we're pretty solid. I mean, from the beginning, um, I went super niche down. I said, we're only going to write content for companies that want to reach software developers. We're going to have these three personas who are target people we want to talk to. And that has stayed pretty true since. We've moved slightly up market since day zero, where the early days we were working a lot more with um, early stage startups that were maybe 10 people, 20 people. And then now we've moved towards our, our typical client is like a series B or greater company. So usually they have a hundred or so employees or more. Um, and now we have more clients that are bigger fortune 500 and publicly traded companies too. Um, that's kind of a natural like cycle that happens though, as you, as a business matures, because those clients are stickier, they're a little easier to depend on. They are less price sensitive, but also it's easier for us to, um, to service them because we know they'll be around. Uh, some of the small startups, they they come in and out all the time and they're fun. Uh, I love talking to those founders, but they're not easy to build a business off of. <laughs> and when you say we, what's your team? Mostly VA or what's the organizational structure? Yeah, yeah. So I uh, pretty intentionally wanted to, from the beginning, hire people who were higher level strategic thinkers that could take on a lot of that work for me. So in other words, like I will, I have, I have two direct reports. I'm trying to get my third in. So I will have three directors under me and then each of them will have their own teams of production and account management and salespeople. Um, but where that's at, like the goal is I want to be able to set the big vision of where we're going and check in on the monthly financials and give all them the things they need, the budget and the whatever support they need to make things happen. But I want to stay out of their way and let them run their par portion of the business. When I, the way, the reason I, I kind of think that way is like when I talk to entrepreneurs who are running, let's say a, a 10 million or hundred million dollar company, that's the way they operate. They don't go in there and jump on every sales call. They can't go in there and tell like who to hire and who to fire on each individual team. They instead just sit back and try to coach and help and support and set the vision. And so I've been trying to like, gr like grow into that. Like I'm, I'm trying to learn to be that, which is really, it's, it's a big switch, but, it, but that's like the way I think about it is like, you have to act like the leader you want to be, if you want to be that leader. So I'm pretending to be that until I get there. Um, so that's how it looks. We have about 17 full-time people uh, and then a couple hundred contractors. So those contractors, um, because of the nature of what we write, it's very technical. We need lots of technical experts who can just hop in and write one or two articles a month. So most of them are part-time. They have their software engineers. They have a day job and they do this on nights and weekends as a way to make a little extra money and get their name out there. One of the things that's really cool about our business is we not only get to help clients create really great content, but the engineers who write the pieces get their names on it. So they get to share that with their future employers and say, look at this thing I wrote, look at this. So they're opening up new job opportunities for themselves as well. And we've now worked with it's well over 250 writers in 54 countries to write content. And so it's like they're we've I've made an, uh, a way more impact than I would have expected in this short of time on this engineering community, which I'm super jazzed about because those are like, that's where I came from. Those are my people. Like I was that just a few years ago. Well, may maybe you can go and ghostwriting as well. Books. It's funny. We're actually working on launching a, an executive ghostwriting service right now. This is, you know, we you kind of mentioned that whole like product market fit thing. I, I wanted to stay very narrow with our focus in the first couple of years until we really nailed that. And now that that's running pretty well, I've started to explore what are the other services we could do. So ghostwriting is on the list. There's a few other things that make sense to tack on. Um, but we were very like, careful about doing too much because my, my, my take is a lot of agencies 
service businesses, they tend to just do anything for everyone who will throw them money and they get very unfocused and it's very hard to maintain quality and to maintain consistently and to build a team around a, we do everything for everyone approach. So I, we're very, the other end of the spectrum. We're very methodical, very measured in how we take on things. Are you afraid of uh, applications or solutions uh, such as Jasper AI or, or sure. similar? Yeah. yeah. I mean, in three years, five years. What's, yeah, what's yeah. The... <laughs> I mean, I am super excited about them. <laughs> like as a we as, as well, a... but my core business is not writing. So right, 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 right. I mean, look, like I guess I <laughs> I look at. Um, this is one business that I'm running today. This is not my life's work in the end of everything I'm ever going to do. So answer A is if at the end of the, if in 10 years, the technology takes over what I do today, fine, I'll move on to something else. You know, like I'm not, that's not the end of the world, but, but answer B is, which I think is the more real, realistic uh, step is we look at those technologies all the time and we look at how could we integrate them in with our writers. Because the reality is those, I've tried many of the AI writing tools, they're all based on GPT-3 right now, and that's a great model. But the problem with it is it, the data they've used is, is several years out of date now. So when we're talking about cutting edge technical topics, it's not correct anymore. They'll eventually figure out a way to make like the, the data real time where it's automatically like, you know, updated with the latest and greatest, which will help a lot. But it's always, in my perspective, I think it's gonna be more like how Excel helps accountants do better work than it is like gonna replace the job completely of a good writer. So the writer may still always be involved as this may be their assistant who helps them write more faster, which would be great because it would cut our costs, we could lower our prices, but I don't think it's gonna be like, we're gonna replace the detail and level of expertise that a five or 10 year software engineer has with AI, not right away. Let's go a little bit deeper into the needs. So what needs does your draft, draft, is that the name of the? Draft.dev. Yes, yeah. address for software developers. Our clients want to sell something to a software developer. So they're typically hosting companies or um, API services or testing to software testing tools, lots of things like that. And so for them, the client, what they need is a way to reach out to and get the attention of software engineers who might buy their tools in a very authentic way that is helpful, genuinely helpful. So uh, the, one of the, the things that's happened in marketing is people have kind of gotten away from the whole like hard sell, especially in like a, a, a really high um, high impact sale like this, where you're, you're talking to like really smart people who who not gonna fall for a bunch of BS or like they don't like cold sales calls. So in other words, what do you do to reach a software engineer? You write really helpful, good content. So. Uh, I'll just like make a really tangible example. Let's say we're working with a web hosting company that hosts, you know, WordPress sites or whatever. So what they want to do is reach WordPress software engineers, people who are writing code for WordPress. They're doing custom plugins and themes because those people are going to host their stuff on their platform. So they're going to write all the best practices, how to solve this problem with WordPress, how to get faster WordPress sites, things like that. And what helps or where we come in is our writers are all 
like hands-on software engineers who've done this in the real world. They're not just copywriters who, you know, kind of Google searched the first few items on that term and then dropped it in there. They're not AI writers who have no context or understanding of what's really going on. They'll actually write up a demo code sample or code, you know, repository to add to that article. They'll take screenshots the whole way. It's like super deep, in-depth, detailed stuff that you couldn't get from a typical SEO agency or content agency. So that's kind of our unique niche that we fill. Um, and it's what's cool about it too is again, because the goal is to build really good educational content, the readers are also getting something out of it. Whether they buy this tool or not, they're still getting a lot of value from that that content. And so I was I love that impact side of it. And I worked in ed tech for 10 years before this. So the, the like education and training and impact side has always been really important to me, even if we're ultimately going to make, you know, these companies more money too, which is great. You know, we want our clients to be successful. So is there any specific uh, methodology then? Oh, yeah. Um, so a lot of things, I took a lot of things from working in education for years, like, um, one big one, uh, this applies on a lot of levels. One big thing I took away though, is this idea of a zone of proximal development, which is really fancy sounding, you know, thing. I, I think a lot of academics like to throw really fancy words, but basically the idea is anytime someone on your team, let's say I'll take a team member as an example. So if I have a new hire and I'm trying to teach them our whole company, you don't want to start with everything, the whole world of like, here's everything to know, because it's so overwhelming that it's going to get them discouraged. They're not going to feel empowered to learn things. So instead, what you want to start with is the very basics and then slowly work your way out. And there's a magic zone in that that list of circles called the zone of proximal development, which means the person is able to do it with just a tiny bit of help or just barely on their own. They don't have to go like, deep into the documentation and just guess or just like copy paste examples because they're they're like they don't really understand it they actually understand most of it so they're able to do it with just barely any help and that's where you want to keep people in so that applies in a lot of a lot of lanes with what we do so if we're writing an article and it's for super senior deeply experienced developers we can skip a lot of the intro stuff that they already know if we're writing an article for beginners or people that are semi-technical even let's say it's a you know brand new grad from a software engineering school, we're going to write it in a totally different way. And so it's really important for us to know the audience of the content we're writing. And then when we think about our writers themselves, like some of them are really, really good. And they're just like great writers and great engineers, but the bulk of them, they have fairly good writing skills and decent or really good engineering skills. So we're always trying to see like, can we push them a little further or are they, is that beyond their capacity? And we have to constantly do this kind of iteration on that. So it applies in a lot of places. And that's something I've always taken away from education is thinking about the, that zone and keeping people in that learning zone where they're really like just a little challenged, but it's not so challenging that they're underwater. So if I want to, to be your customer, how does the content creation process work? We typically, you know, we have a call, sales call, we'll talk about what we do, how we do it. We ask them more about what they need and we'll kind of recommend some, here's the package we, we kind of can put together for you. Um, and typically what it ends up looking like is the customer will come to us with either a bunch of ideas for articles that they've already had in place, or they'll ask us to help them generate some ideas and we'll work with them on that. From there, we'll create detailed outlines and briefs that are about a page each. Um, this helps them see like kind of in a very short form, like what is this article actually going to look like? What will it actually cover? What resources would we need to tell the writer about? Is there any context we're missing? Is there a certain call to action you're trying to get here? Is there a certain like 
uh, level of difficulty or audience you're trying to reach. Anyway, so we'll get all that specified in the brief. And then we go match that up with the best writer who's available and try to do this whole big like puzzle piece game of is the writer available? Do they have the skills? And will this fit in the client's timeline? And so we do that all the time. That's like a constant, we have full-time people doing that essentially all the time. And then um, as that work gets done, we have several rounds of editing that happens. We do a tech review in-house. We have full-time and part-time engineers, depending on the type of subject who will review each piece and make sure it's actually technically sound, that the writer really knows this topic well. Then we have a developmental edit, which is more focused on higher level structure and organization. Uh, again, these are not professional writers. They're professional engineers who can kind of write. And so often we're trying to re like help them get their ideas into a better structure. So we'll give them a lot of feedback and work with them. And then the final step is a copy edit, which is basically just the finer points of grammar, spelling, et cetera. And then we get that back to a client. They start, they do another round of revisions if they want, and then we're all done. So that's kind of how it looks. It's a really involved process and it takes a lot of people to build each piece of content, but that's part of what keeps quality high and consistent as we scale this up, because now we're doing, you know, a, a fairly high number of articles. We have clients doing up to 15 or 20 articles a week, I think, or a month. I'm sorry. Uh, so it's, I mean, and with 90 clients, like you can kind of extrapolate a little, like most of them are not that high, but it's still like, it's a lot of content. And so it takes a really well-oiled machine to keep that running. If you're interested in um, this kind of content, like you're developer tools company, you want to write, really get really good content written. Draft.dev is the URL and we're always happy to chat. There's plenty of information there. Um, personally though, if you, you know, you're an entrepreneur, you're a marketing person, you're interested in learning about this space and you just want to chat sometime, uh, you can always find me on Twitter uh, at Carl L Hughes and Carl's with a K. I, you know, my email is carl at draft.dev. Uh, so you're always welcome to, to shoot me a message and we can kind of uh, work it out. I'm always happy to, to hear more about what other people are working on. So whatever makes sense is great with me. It's, it's just fun to connect with other people on here. Twenty first Century Entrepreneurship with Martin Piskorik.